This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Book of Romans. The sentence that the Spirit has been impressing on me today is that true holiness is the life of Christ within. True holiness is the life of Christ within. And if you look around this morning, you are seeing the resurrection life of Christ being manifested in his body, the church, which is an amazing thing for weak and lowly people like ourselves, isn't it? And it's really important that when we begin talking and thinking about the Christian life, we're not moving away from Jesus to talk about ourselves, not moving away from the gospel to emphasize human human response. We are continuing to talk about the grace of God being manifested in power, in reality, here and now. Amen? So the title of my message today is Dead to Sin and Alive to God in Christ. And more importantly, my text is in the book of Romans, chapter 6, the first 14 verses. Romans 6, verses 1 to 14. And let's turn there without further ado and see what the Lord has to say to us today. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Thanks be to God. Now, the gospel of grace can seem a little reckless. I mean, God really likes forgiving, and I really like sinning, and it sounds like we could come to a little arrangement here, doesn't it? It might sound like we have stumbled across the ultimate loophole. Now, although a magic jerk pass for myself sounds tantalizing at times, it fills me with horror to think of my neighbors and my family living the same way. And you can understand why people who genuinely care about building a good and just society would be a little bit cautious about this kind of message. And with good reason. I mean, who has not been burned by Christians, or at least by people who claim to be Christians and are not living like it. 
It's, it's a scandal, isn't it? And people stumble over that. And so I think we can agree that for grace to be truly good, for grace to be truly worthwhile, it must go a lot further than forgiveness. True grace must deal not only with sin's penalty, but also with its power. Not just with the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. Otherwise, this message is not worth believing at all. Now, allow me to tell you a little parable to illustrate, to make this a bit more vivid. Imagine a woman, let's just call her Maria, who gets into crystal meth. Now, crystal meth is one of the harshest and most destructive illicit drugs available. It's terrible if you see, if you've ever seen a before and after picture of some young woman who gets into this drug, it's just devastating. And so she tries to hide her addiction, but inevitably her husband, let's call him Peter, he learns the tragic truth about what's happening with his wife. And instead of kicking her out of the house, he embraces this sobbing woman. And he tells her he will always love her. All is forgiven. Sounds like the gospel so far, doesn't it? But let's stretch the story, let's spin it out a little further. As Maria spirals deeper down into her darkness, Peter just sits in his rocking chair, and he smiles contentedly upon her. He hides the shameful truth from her family, instead of gathering them to confront and rescue her wife from this destructive habit. And he pays off the hard-faced men who come to their house late at night demanding payment, instead of doing what Jesus would do, which is to shove them in front of a marshruka. <laughs> See, Peter is a classic enabler. He's a classic enabler. And his grace, notice the air quotes, his grace is actually poison. Because Maria needs more than forgiveness, doesn't she? She needs a husband who actually loves her enough to hate her crystal meth habit, enough to do whatever it takes to destroy it before it destroys her. Now, in case my parable, the lesson of my parable, is not obvious enough, here is the interpretation. Sin is the crystal meth of the soul. And at first, it's exhilarating, it's exciting, but it quickly becomes a tormenting slavery that sucks all life and joy from us and turns us into glassy-eyed skeletons. Now, as we're lying there in our filth and our misery, does Jesus just forgive us and walk away? Does God adopt us as his children but not heal our addiction? Does he change our status while leaving our nature untouched? Let that question hang in the air for a minute. As you think about yourself, do you possibly have some kind of loathsome compulsion that you just can't kill? And you've confessed the sin to God again and again. You've brought other people in for accountability. You have tried every spiritual discipline known to man and then some. But it just feels too strong. And in your despair, you've begun to wonder, perhaps I am to continue in sin so that grace may abound. Maybe God just wants me to accept that I'll never be more than a forgiven failure. And that in some weird way, God actually needs my sin to keep me humble at the foot of the cross. 
Is that true? Is that the gospel that we're preaching and trusting in? Has Jesus rescued us from the penalty of sin only to abandon us to its power? God forbid is Paul's answer. By no means. And in destroying this soul-sucking lie, he opens up one of the most glorious truths of the New Testament. And what Paul turns to is the mighty doctrine of union with Christ, culminating in his exhortation in verse 11 to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that expression, in Christ, or through Christ, or by Christ, crops up again and again and again in Paul's writing. And if you took your highlighter and highlighted every occurrence you could find, you would have 164 fluorescent strips staring up at you. And I think we may have stumbled across Paul's favorite truth, that we are in Christ. Now, just as as an example, to give you a flavor, listen to this whole string from Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. Paul begins by telling us we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, predestined for adoption as sons through him. In him we have redemption through his blood. In him we have obtained an inheritance. In him we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And when we were dead in sins, Paul goes on in Ephesians 2, God made us alive in Christ, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. We are his workmanship, Paul writes, created in Christ Jesus for good works. In Christ Jesus, those who were once far off were brought near by his blood, so that through him we all have access in one spirit to the Father, and in him we all are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Him, in Him, in Him. And so you can see just from the first two chapters of Ephesians that our union with Christ, our oneness with Him, is the fountain from which every blessing of salvation flows. We don't want blessings. We want you. We were just singing. Every blessing from our election in Christ in eternity past to our glorification in Christ in eternity future. To be in Christ by faith is to possess every good thing imaginable. And that's why in 1934, when the Scottish theologian James Stewart wrote his book on Paul's theology, he titled it simply, A Man in Christ. And is there a better description of any of us here who believe in Jesus than a man in Christ a woman in Christ, a boy in Christ, a girl in Christ. That is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Now, to illustrate this a bit, to help us understand, what does it actually mean to be one with Christ? Let's think back to that familiar Old Testament story of David and Goliath. So here's this gigantic brute Goliath, and he's standing in front of the Philistine hordes, and he's screaming insults and blasphemies, at the trembling, shaking Israelites on the opposite hill across the valley. And day after day, he challenges one of them, any of them, to single combat. But God's people freeze in fear. Even Saul, with all his armor, paralyzed in terror. And then, the young warrior David arrives. Israel's true king accepts the challenge. 
he walks up to the, to the mocking giant and he slings that one smooth stone deep into his forehead. Goliath crashes to earth. David pulls out the giant's sword and he saws through that hairy neck and heaves the severed head into the air. And for several long seconds, the valley falls silent. And both Philistines and Israelites are gaping in shock. And then, a mighty cheer from the charging Israelites and the Philistines stumble over each other in a panicked rout. Now, imagine that you are an Israelite soldier returning from battle, and you burst through your front door, and you shout to your wife and your children, We won! We won! We killed the giant, and we cut off his head, and we defeated the enemy! And you would be exactly right to say we. For David faced Goliath, not as a private individual, but as the public representative of the entire nation. And every man, woman, and child shared in their champion's victory. And now Paul is announcing a hero greater than David has come. He is a man like ourselves. He shares our flesh and blood. And he steps forth as the head of a new humanity. And our mighty champion takes on the fearful giant that had enslaved and tormented us. And where the first Adam failed, the second Adam does not fail. He faces the blaspheming giant and hacks off his head with what sin thought was its own weapon, the mighty two-handed sword called the cross of Christ. And now the enemies of mankind are routed and we surge forward. We've slain the giants, my friends. We have conquered death and through him who loves us, we are more than conquerors. Uh, but the, the story of David and Goliath falls short because our union with Christ is even deeper and more profound than that between an ancient king and his people. The New Testament compares our oneness with Christ to that of a cornerstone and a building, a head and its body, a vine and its branches, and above all, a husband and his bride. It's a mystery beyond words. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. The moment you trusted in Christ, you were welded to him, fused to him with a supernatural bond that nothing in heaven or earth or hell can ever break. One with Christ now and forever. And therefore, since you are in Christ, you stand righteous before God. And since you are in Christ, you do walk and you will walk in holiness before God. Justification and sanctification always go together because Christ cannot be torn in pieces. See, salvation is not the set of depersonalized benefits from which we pick and choose. Salvation is Christ himself. Our Jesus of Nazareth is the tree of life. And every spiritual blessing hangs from his branches. God has given us eternal life, First John says, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son 
has life. Jesus is eternal life. So now I hope I've given you some vague, dim grasp of union with Christ, and much, much more deserves to be said. We can, we can grasp, hopefully, what Paul is saying in Romans 6 as it applies to our lives. Now, I doubt this is where most of us would begin when faced with this objection. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul turns, of all things, to baptism. When you were lowered into the water, or sprinkled, or however it was done, you were being buried with Christ by baptism into death. We could say that baptism is a ritualized drowning. And perhaps next time Pastor David baptizes someone to make it a little more real for us, he could just forcibly hold their head underwater for a little longer <laughs> until the bubbles slow and finally stop. Because in the realm of the Spirit, that's what actually happens. Baptism, not as a magical symbol, but as the culmination of a whole conversion, was the execution of the old you. Baptism is the execution of the old you. See, you can only save your life if you lose it, lose all of it. All your old loyalties, all your old loves, your old masters, your total, complete identity, B.C., before Christ, everything must go. It's rotten to the core. Nothing is worth salvaging. We need more than some duct tape and some paint here. The cancer is far too deep for a little moral exertion, for some spiritual disciplines or just trying harder. There's only one cure for the disease, and the cure is death. That death of your old self at your conversion was the beginning of your experience of union with Christ. And at baptism, your biography merged into his, and his story became yours. See, Paul is saying that Jesus' last shuddering breaths outside Jerusalem were also the last, last gasps of the old you. And when he was laid in the tomb, your old self was buried beside him. And so our union with Christ, our oneness with him, means that we have undergone a permanent break with our old identity. It's dead. Not mostly dead, like Wesley and the Princess Bride. Dead, dead, dead. And the old you, thank God, is never going to come staggering out of the grave to haunt us again. So what does this mean? We died with Christ, Paul says in verses 6 and 7, so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. The one who has died has been set free from sin. In other words, when we came to Christ and put our faith in him, sin's power to dominate us, define our life, and force us to obey was forever shattered. The only power sin has left is the power of bluff. It has no ability to back up its empty threats. In Alexander Dumas' classic novel, The Count of Monte Cristo, perhaps you've read it or seen the movie, the hero is unjustly, falsely imprisoned in an island fortress. And every year on the anniversary of his imprisonment, his jailer comes, unlocks the door, and beats him unconscious. Telling him as he does so, he has no hope and will only leave the island in his coffin. And when the hero's only friend dies, an old monk in a nearby cell, the hero has a flash of inspiration. He crawls through the tunnel, switches places with the corpse, and sews himself into the body bag from the inside. Instead of burying him, 
The soldiers take, them, take what they think is the corpse to the top of the cliff, and they fling it off the rocks, down, 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 to the churning seas below. And our hero underwater has to rip open the sack, and he swims to the surface, a free man. And then he discovers the hidden treasure that the monk had told him about, and he becomes fantastically rich. And under his new identity, as the Count of Monte Cristo, he even tours his old prison years later, unrecognized by his former tormentors. Now, in Christ, we have escaped the fortress of sin in his coffin, not by pretending to be dead, but by actually dying with him. And now, with his new identity and his fabulous riches, we too are far beyond the power of that old jailer to imprison and torture us. Now, you might have noticed, as we read Romans 6, that, that Paul is really hammering the same argument over and over again, in verse after verse, that if we died with Christ, then we will also live with him. If, then. If we have been united with him in a death like his, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. God's promise to you this afternoon is this, that if you die to your old life, you will discover a new life waiting for you, far greater, far better than the one you left behind. See, when Jesus walked out of his tomb at Easter dawn, he did so in triumph, having stripped death of all its power. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, can never die again, Paul says in verse 9. See, Jesus was resurrected, not resuscitated. And there is a difference. When Lazarus came out of the tomb, he was resuscitated. In other words, he was brought back from the grave to the same life he had before. And like everyone else who had been raised in the Bible before and the Old Testament, he would have to die again. Poor fellow. <laughs> but Jesus was not resuscitated. He was resurrected. He was raised to a completely different plane of physical existence, a state of exaltation. And his physical body was so glorious that the friends who had walked with him for three years had trouble even recognizing him. Think of the last disciple to die, the Apostle John, in exile on the island of Patmos, in the book of Revelation. And his risen Lord appears to him, lays his right hand on the faithful disciple, and declares, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Behold, the immense power and fullness of the exalted Son of God. If you are united to Christ by faith, His very life throbs in your veins. You may look dull and ordinary in the world's eyes, maybe to each other, but you are clothed with the same power that holds the stars in their courses. You and I are living out of the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, Paul is not preaching some deeper secret of the higher life. This is not some special second level we attain to after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, or praying night and day, or even making a substantial donation to the church building fund. No, no, if... You're in Christ. If you've put your faith in him, you have already been enjoying this, perhaps completely unawares. Your love for God and for us 
weak as you might feel it to be, is the true life of Christ within you. Your body has to wait for its resurrection till the last day, but your spirit is already alive in Christ, never to die again. If you've been united with Christ, you've been given a new heart in the image of Christ with an unquenchable desire for holiness. You're finally free to obey God. You are able to please him. You enjoy the power to bring glory to him in any given moment. For Christ lives in your heart through faith. Listen to what Martin Luther has to say. We often associate him with justification by faith, but he also loved sanctification by faith. Here's what he says. My holiness, righteousness, and purity do not stem from me, nor do they depend on me. They come solely from Christ and are based in him, in whom I am rooted by faith, just as sap flows from the stalk into the branches. Now, I bear fruit in him and through him. The fruit is not mine. It is the vine's. True holiness is the life of Christ within. Now, the great question is, how do we actually live this out? Otherwise, it's just ideas, theory, and doctrine floating 50 feet above the ground. How do we live this out? Because you notice in the first 10 verses, Paul has only been making statements. Now, he gives us three practical exhortations. First, in verse 11, Paul says, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The first practical step is to stop and reflect. Don't just do something, stand there. Here are these stupendous truths, these great realities about what has actually happened to you in Christ. Just let that soak into your heart regularly. We do not spend nearly enough time simply enjoying what Christ has done for us and who he is for us. Notice consider, not pretend. It's not like the white queen in Alice in Wonderland who bragged that she could believe six impossible things before breakfast. Faith is not believing what you know to be false. It's trusting what you know to be true. And every day, you and I must remind ourselves of who we really are. Men and women, boys and girls, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Stop muttering your old identity over yourself. I'm a porn addict, I'm a habitual liar, I'm a slave to crippling fear. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. John Newton, the converted slave-trading sea captain, whom we know as the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, he liked to say this, I'm not what I ought to be. Amen? I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I will be. But I am not what I once was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And by the grace of God, you are what you are, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And does it honor Christ if we fail to recognize who we are in him? Is that true humility to ignore what the spirit of the resurrected Christ is doing in our lives? Or should that not also be cause for thanksgiving and a worship when we see it in ourselves and in one another. You know, my old church way back, there are a lot of things wrong with that church, but one thing we would often do on someone's birthday, 
We would just gather around in a circle and point out what we called evidences of grace in their lives. And it was super encouraging when you thought you had not grown at all, that you were still stuck in sins and habits that you were having a hard time kicking, that other people, God had given them eyes to see what Jesus was doing in your life. And I think that would be a good thing for us to carry over into our lives here. Now, Paul's second exhortation is in verse 12. First he said, consider, and now he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And let's be careful to notice that it was our old identity that died, but not sin. And if you've been a Christian longer than, say, 10 seconds, you know that sin is still very much alive, don't you? And it's always trying to reach over and grab the steering wheel and swerve you into the ditch. See, your former master never stops trying to reassert his old authority. First with promises, and then with threats. But both are deceitful. The only power sin has left is what you allow him. Bluff, yes, bluff might be the only power sin has left. But if we're naive and listen to him, bluff might be all that sin needs. So this afternoon, if you have let sin reign in some area, if there's some sin that is dominating your heart, the Spirit is calling you today to stop whining and cringing, wrestle sin down, and wrestle your rightful authority out of its hands. Act the miracle. God promises that when we obey and trust in Jesus and step forward in obedience, trust and obey, like the children's hymn says, that God will meet us there. Not while we're sitting back, wondering and worrying, waiting for God to magically do something. God wants us to step forward in faith, and he will meet us there. Paul's final exhortation is that instead of presenting yourself to sin to do its work, here I am, sin, you present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And there is something about life that wants to be up and doing. When the lame beggar at the temple felt his feet and ankles were made strong, what does he do? He immediately jumps up and starts leaping and dancing and praising God. No healthy person wants to be lying in bed, hooked up to a machine, watching the fluid slosh in and out, waiting for the nurse to come and turn you over. Christ's resurrection life fills us with vigor. It's not sluggish or sleepy. It's quick, energetic, forceful, throbbing with power, transforming us like David's mighty men into doers of great deeds. So, brothers and sisters, present yourselves to God, eager to stretch your new muscles in service, to be instruments of righteousness and justice in a world that badly needs it. Of course, if you haven't received new life in Christ, you are completely powerless. I can't appeal to you to break free of sin because you are still in chains. And sin is only mocking at your feeble attempts to break through and become a truly good person before God. Spiritual discipline, sterner resolutions, even greater effort, the law, good as it is, is impotent to bring about new life. And like a, like a person in quicksand, your struggle is only sucking you down deeper into sin's power. Your one hope is to lunge for Christ's strong arm stretched out to you this afternoon. And trust yourself to him. He will forgive you, but not only forgive you, he will make you a new person. And if you are in Christ, you can leave here today with Paul's words ringing in your ears, sin 
shall not have dominion over you. This is not a command. This is a statement, a promise for everyone in Christ, and not just a promise for the distant future, but for your struggle today. Sin will not have dominion over you. Why will sin not have dominion over you? Because you're not under law, else you'd be stuck in slavery forever. You're under grace. You are in a new realm. You are in Christ. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at TICF.com. Hyphen Georgia dot org. Thanks for listening.